Amen. Hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Father, I come to you, and um, Lord, I echo those words from Psalm 145. Father, we do praise your name, because your name is the only one that's worthy of being praised. Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sing songs that lift you high. And now, Father, as we approach your word, may you help us to understand what it says, and then, Father, how to apply it to our lives. Father, we thank you that you have been magnified so far, and may you continue to be lifted high. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name I pray, amen. Amen. Church, I got a celebration with you. You ready for this? Maryway Christian Camp had their first week of overnight camp this past week. Pastor Rick was the, uh, was the speaker for the week, and throughout the week itself, 14 campers came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and personal Savior. Yeah. That is 14 campers that we will see in heaven someday because they made a decision to follow Jesus this past week. Thank you for the ways that you give so that Marywood Christian Camp can exist and thank you for the way that you pour yourself into them. I, um, today we are approaching a topic that, um, that honestly is, is kind of fun for me to talk about. Uh, we're in this series of talking about um, our story, his story. So, so God's big picture story according to his word, working through God's word in this year. But then how do we fit into God's story? Today we're going to talk actually about prophecy. Specifically, prophecy of Jesus. Then next week, we're going to get into talking about prophecy of the end times, eschatology, that kind of thing. But um, we live in a culture right now in which it's not unusual for a person to claim that they have a, a vision of God or from God about something that is going to come about, something that's going to come up. Uh, in fact, there's some nut jobs out there if you really think about it and you listen to the news at all. Um, Maybe some people predict that there's a specific time in which Jesus is going to come, uh, even down to the day and the time of that day in which he's going to come. Yet Jesus himself very clearly said, no man knows the day or the time in which the Father's going to send him back here to earth for the rapture. Nobody knows that. There's a man who calls himself the firefighter prophet. And I'm not, I'm not actually going to mention his name, so I don't add fodder to his um, ridiculous amount of fame. But this firefighter prophet uh, claims that he has or receives prophecies from God regarding politics. Okay, here's an example. During the first term of President Obama's presidency, this firefighter prophet said that Obama would end up with a third consecutive term. Okay, so one term, two terms, he would end up with a third consecutive term. He said that God told him that that would take place. Well, then President Trump is elected and people are like, hey, man, you were wrong. He's like, no, I'm not. He's just running a shadow government behind the scenes. Legit, that's exactly what he said. He, Obama's running a, a shadow government behind the scenes. Now, our world is really full of people who think they know exactly what's going to happen and, and when it's going to take place and, and how it's all going to take place. And prophecy itself has been looked on um, by the world in general and oftentimes by the church with a sense of suspicion, of, of not quite understanding what to think or knowing what to think about it, not really understanding even what to, what to do with it. But as believers, we got this great blessing of having God's Word to look to as the authority when it comes to prophecy. From the very beginning this morning, I want to communicate that we have a responsibility as believers 
to handle the prophecy that's found in the Bible in a healthy and in a biblical way. That we seek to understand it. We want to be informed. We want to be firm in what God clearly says is going to happen, but at the same time use discretion about how we teach a subject such as prophecy. You say, well, what do you mean by that using discretion? And here's what I mean. If you think about uh, the different authors in the New Testament, uh, we'll just say Paul, Peter, John, um, you think about Jesus even, uh, talked about prophecy, he prophesied. All of them at some point uh, dealt with the issue of, of prophecy. Maybe they did prophesy through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But one thing that was central and core to every one of the people in the New Testament was the fact that they didn't major on the prophecy, they majored on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel was at the core of everything that they said and did. Prophecy was a a secondary issue for them or secondary item for them to to teach on. You see, a a person who makes the prophecy the focus is the person who has his priorities mixed up. Because I I would argue that you cannot truly understand prophecy without first knowing Jesus personally. It's only through a personal relationship with Jesus that you can understand what it was that God said is going to happen and you can trust God in that. You think about the Old Testament when um, the Jews, they, they had this mindset of what the Messiah was going to look like, right, based off of the writings of the, of the Old Testament. Well, it ended up that Jesus was anything but what they expected. They thought they were getting a political and a military leader, and when in reality, they didn't get a political or military leader. They got someone who was there to save their souls, because God knew that that's exactly what they needed over this political and military leader. Now, there is coming a day in which Jesus will be that political and that military leader. We look forward to that day. We'll talk about it more next week. But that's an example of the the misinformation that, that we oftentimes have. We got to keep the gospel central and then go out from there based off of God's word. The Bible as a whole is prophetic in nature from beginning to end. From creation all the way to the end of Revelation, there is always something coming in the future that fills people with a sense of hope. In the, New, in the Old Testament, there was the hope of the Messiah that was coming, right? Then the Messiah comes, he lives here on this earth, and then after he leaves, and, and some before, but after he leaves, then the focus is on the future, on the end times, what we refer to as eschatology, the study of the end times. There's always something that you're looking forward to in, in hopefulness, right? You're, you're watching for it. That's one of the beauties of being a Christian. There's always something better coming. And we don't look for the greener grass while here on this earth because we know the greener grass is not until we get to eternity. But that's one of the beautiful things about, um, about Christianity, You know, I think about the fact that in the New Testament, the focus is on the creation of a new heaven, a new earth. We know that there's coming a day in which there's not going to be any more sin, heartache, corruption, or pollution on this earth. I think of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, where we read, since all these things, these earthly things is what it's talking about there, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is coming a day in which everything wrong is going to be made right. Righteousness righteousness will fully occupy every aspect of God's world. Now, God ordained prophecy... It's something that is absolutely amazing to study and to understand. 
In fact, anytime you start looking at prophecy, you're going to find that it is nothing short of a testament to the omniscience and the omnipotence of God. You say, well, what does that mean? Omniscient means that God is all-knowing. Omnipotent means that God is all-powerful. You've got to hang on to those definitions because as we work through this sermon, you're going to, they're going to come up again, okay? For today, uh, we're looking specifically at the prophecy that we find in the Old Testament that has to do with Jesus. Next week, we'll talk more about the end times. Today, the prophecy in the Old Testament that has to do with Jesus. We're going to do so by talking through two main ideas, okay? First of all, through prophecy fulfilled, we see that God's Word can be trusted. Number two, in prophecy fulfilled, God's plan reigns supreme. Those are two things we're going to find as we move through our passage of scriptures. Let's jump right in here with the first one, okay? Through prophecy fulfilled, we see that God's Word can be trusted. Now, there are tons of questions that, about Jesus that can be answered through the reading of the prophetic passages in the Old Testament. Okay, we, got, we got tons of questions. The people in the Old Testament had tons of questions. Why is he coming? When is he going to come? What's his purpose in coming? What's he going to be like? How is he going to deliver his people? But even before Jesus comes, if you look just at the Old Testament, you've got a fairly detailed picture of what Jesus is going to look like and his nature and purpose in coming to earth. There's a whole lot of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. In fact, scholars kind of differ on how many prophecies exactly there are in the Old Testament. Um, we know how many passages of Scripture, we think we know about how many passages of Scripture there are about prophecy of Jesus. Somewhere between four and 500 passages altogether, all throughout the Old Testament. Now, a lot of those are duplicate prophecies, so there's not that many prophecies. But there's that many passages of Scripture that speak about Jesus and His coming. We are absolutely sure that there are no less than 55 already fulfilled prophecies of Jesus, okay? Now, I say 55 because that's the ones that I have written down, okay? There are many more. There are many more. But we'll just start with this number of 55, okay? 55 fulfilled prophecies from Jesus. Josh McDowell wrote a book several years ago, and it was entitled um, uh, Evidence That Demands, uh, yeah, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and in that book, he uses research done by Peter Stoner to communicate um, the significance of fulfilled prophecy. Now, you're going to have to hang on here for just a minute, okay? You got this? I'm going to read from Josh McDowell's book. Here's what he says. Professor Emeritus of Science at Westmont College, Peter Stoner, has calculated the probability of one man fulfilling the major prophecies made concerning the Messiah. The estimates were worked out by 12 different classes representing some 600 university students. The scientists carefully weighed all the factors, discussed each prophecy at length, and examined the various circumstances which might indicate that men had conspired together to fulfill a particular prophecy. They made their estimates conservative enough so that there was finally unanimous agreement among even the most skeptical students. However, Professor Stoner then took their estimates and made them even more conservative. He also encouraged other skeptics and scientists to make their own estimates to see if his conclusions were more than fair. Finally, he submitted his figures for review to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. Upon examination, they verified that his calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to his scientific material presented. For example, when it's concerning Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where it states the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Stoner and his students determined the average population of Bethlehem from the time of Micah to the present. 
Then they divided it by the average population of the earth during the same time period. They concluded that the chance of one man being born in Bethlehem was one in 300,000. After examining only eight different prophecies, get that, okay? Only after examining only eight different prophecies, they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, how many of you know what that means? Okay, 10 to the 17th power. It means there's a, there's a one with 17 zeros behind it. Here's what that number looks like, all right? The chance of one man fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies apart from God, a one in that number chance. Now, I'm going to see if I can help illustrate this here for a second, okay? Um, I have here a hat. Now, it's a great hat. It's a Duke hat. It's the, only, it's the only kind of hat that you can use for something like this. But inside this hat, I have 10 tickets. And let's say that I took one of these tickets out, it looks like this, and I just took a Sharpie or a pen or something and made a mark on it. I put it inside here. I had one of you blindfolded and said, hey, come take out one of these tickets. You would have a 1 in 10 chance of pulling out the correct ticket, the marked ticket, right? That makes sense, Correct. Now, Peter Stoner, he gave this, this illustration and, well, he gave this number and he said, well, I got I to figure out how to illustrate this number. Because we see a number such as that and we think, wow, that's a big number. Um, I wonder what that means, right? Let me see if I can help based off of Peter Stoner's illustration. Let me see if I can help illustrate what this means. Uh, I have in my hand here a silver dollar. It's a silver dollar from 1887. It's not mine. It's borrowed from somebody else. Let's say that I was to take this silver dollar and make a mark on it with a Sharpie. I'm not because it's somebody else, but let's say I did that. And then I went to the state of Texas and I had that many silver dollars. And I spread them out all over the, the land of Texas. Those silver dollars would be two foot thick, two foot deep. All right? Now I take this one that has a mark on it, I throw it out, and then somehow with a great big mixer, we take and we mix all of those silver dollars up all over the state of Texas. And then we blindfold somebody and say, you can walk as far as you want to walk, as long as you want to walk, but at some point you've got to stoop down, you've got to pick up a silver dollar. They have a 1 in 10 to the 17th power chance of picking up the correct silver dollar. That's how great a chance there is of one man fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies without apart, apart from God. That's the chance. Now, I told you earlier that based on my study so far, and I've got a long ways to go, I've got 55 of these prophecies fulfilled, written down. There are more. Let's do this. Um, Peter Stoner didn't stop at, at eight, one in eight chance. He, he actually went on and he, uh, he also included the chance of 48 of these prophecies being fulfilled in one man, okay, apart from God. And here was the number that he came up with. It is a one in 10 to the 157th power, that 48 of those are actually fulfilled in one man. 
Here's where I'm getting at with this. If it was up to mankind to somehow fabricate that, that what is said in the Old Testament is actually going to take place in the life of Jesus, if it, was, if it was up to man for them to fabricate that, then it is utterly impossible. It is utterly impossible. In fact, scientists say that when you get anywhere above the 10 to the 50th power, it is absolutely impossible for whatever it is to take place. Well, we're, we're sitting here at 48 of these prophecies being fulfilled in one man, and it's a one out of 10 to the 157th power chance. That is a proclamation of the glory and the majesty and the awesomeness of our God. That he would think up this, right? That, that, that he would have this plan that is put in place where Jesus actually fulfills the prophecies that are, that are given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to those Old Testament authors and he actually, they're, they're fulfilled in him. Folks, it is absolutely phenomenal. Our God is a great and mighty and awesome, awesome God. Somebody say amen right there. First time we hear anything about Jesus in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have just sinned and God's creation is no longer perfect as he designed it. God's speaking to the serpent, to Satan, and he gives the first allusion to the coming Messiah. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Satan, you are going to hurt Jesus, but Jesus is going to crush you. God's going to deliver mankind from their sin and their bondage to Satan through Jesus. This is the very first prophecy about Jesus that we find in the Bible. Now, the fulfillment of this particular prophecy is clearly seen in the death and the resurrection and the future eternal reign of Jesus. Satan does bruise the heel of Jesus through the crucifixion, but Jesus crushes the head of Satan through the resurrection, and someday in the future, Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire forever. We read that in Revelation chapter 20. Prophecies about Jesus begin to pop up all over the New Testament. In fact, there's no way that I can outline all of these for you, but here's just a few of them. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Luke chapter 1, we see the fulfillment of this prophecy when an angel appears to Mary, who is a virgin, and tells her she is going to give birth to a son, Jesus. He is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. Here's a super vague prophecy, okay? It's found in Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The fulfillment of that is found in Matthew chapter 2, where we read, And he, talking about Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Here's a prophecy about Jesus' ministry. Psalm 78, verses 1 and 2. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Now the prophecy there is that Jesus is going to speak in parables with great wisdom, telling people and showing them things that are not understood. Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, we read this. All these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. 
In Isaiah chapter 9, we see it prophesied that Jesus' ministry is going to begin in Galilee. You jump over to Matthew chapter 4, you see that Jesus' ministry begins in Galilee. Isaiah chapter 40, we read that Jesus will be preceded by a forerunner who tells people the Messiah is coming. In John chapter 1, we find John the Baptist doing exactly that. In Isaiah 61, it is written of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of, it, of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And I love what takes place in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is in the synagogue and he reads these words that I just read for, me, for you from, ne- from Isaiah And he rolls up the scroll that he's reading from. He sits down, and here's what he says. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Daniel chapter 9, we read that Jesus will finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, and bring in everlasting righteousness. Galatians chapter 1, verse 2. In fulfillment of that, the apostle Paul writes that Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God. You also know what takes place in Ephesians chapter 2, in which we read that uh, we were dead in our sin. All of us were. We didn't, none of us were born alive uh, in Christ. However, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, and he did that through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. There's there's even a, a super specific prophecy in the book of Numbers that says that not a single bone of Jesus is going to be broken while he's alive. And if you go on and you read the New Testament, what you're going to find is that sure enough, not a single bone of Jesus is broken during his entire life. Now, folks, I've only shared with you 10 prophecies here, okay? Only 10 of them. Those are ones that we find in the Old Testament, and they're fulfilled through Jesus, and we have Scripture to back it up in the New Testament. There are many, 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 many more. The beautiful thing about studying prophecy and understanding what God has said is going to take place is that you can clearly see that in prophecy fulfilled, we see God's plan reign supreme. We see God's plan reign supreme. Earlier, I used two terms to describe God to you. Remember them? Omniscient and omnipotent. You remember those terms? In God's omniscience, he has the ability and see, to see and to know all things. If you look at the screen right now, um, you'll see a line. It's a line without end. It doesn't have a beginning. It doesn't have an end. That is representing what God knows, what God has seen. God knows all things from the past. He knows all things for the future. God knows all things. But then there's an intersecting vertical line that's there on that big line. You see that? You see it from where you're sitting? That represents what you know. That represents what I know. And what it tells me is that I know very little compared to what my God knows. That he is omniscient and that he knows all things. He knows everything that's going on. He sees what took place in the past. He knows what will take place tomorrow. He knows. I don't. I can't. Folks, one of the things about prophecy, and when you look at the big picture of God's story, is that if God was only omniscient in knowing everything, but he wasn't also omnipotent, 
then God would know everything that's going on, but he would have no power to actually alter the course of the world and to orchestrate things. The reality, though, is that God is both omniscient and he is omnipotent. He knows all things and he is all-powerful in that he can do something in the course of history. God is intimately aware of your life right now. But just as much as he is aware of your life right now, he also has the power to do something about your life right now. You're going through a difficult time? God knows, and he has the power to do something about it. Folks, God is absolutely amazing. One of the things we've been concentrating on this year as we've been reading through the Bible together, as we've worked through this series, is understanding how we fit, how our story as individuals fit into God's story. I want to take us to a passage of Scripture, Isaiah 53. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Isaiah 53, it's an Old Testament prophecy, and we're going to see clearly the center of God's plan today. Isaiah 53. Now, the Old Testament has been full up to this point of, of prophecies about Jesus. But in this passage, we come to what many people call um, the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecies. And while you're turning there to Isaiah 53, I'm going to remind you quickly of what's taken place up to this point, okay? God created the world perfect. There's no sin, no pain, no death. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, sin and death enter into the world. From that time, God begins putting together a plan for how his creation, mankind, can have a relationship with him. Now, throughout the whole Old Testament, we catch glimpses of what that plan entails. It's going to include a Messiah, a Savior, who will take away the sin of mankind and is going to reestablish a relationship with God. However, that reestablishment of a relationship is going to come at a high, high cost. It's going to cost Jesus, the Son of God, his life. And now here in Isaiah 53, we get this clear look at the kind of suffering that Jesus is going to experience in order to save us from our sin. Now, I want to read this, um, and I want for us to be reminded this morning that Jesus is the center of God's plan for mankind. All right, so let's pick up reading in verse 1. Who has believed that what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, talking about Jesus, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one with, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now let's pause there for just a moment. What we find in these verses is really, honestly, pretty simple. When a person looked on the outward appearance of Jesus, they didn't notice anything spectacular. It wasn't like he was the most handsome guy in the room. In verse 3, we continue reading, we find it prophesied that Jesus is to be despised and rejected by people in general, by mankind. He's going to be a man of sorrows who understands grief. He's the kind of man that people turn away from, not because he's ugly, but because it was simply hard to look on him. He was made lowly, almost like a criminal would be. Now, does that sound familiar? Something that's probably coming in Jesus' life that we know about now? Yeah. 
Verse 4 tells us that Jesus is going to bear the grief of sin that is supposed to be on mankind. He is going to carry our sorrows. Yet mankind tends to look on him as a person who is cursed by God. Why? Why did this take place the way it did? Let's pick up in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear the iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Folks, the reality is that every single one of us were like the sheep that were mentioned right there in verse 6. Every single one of us. From the first sin of Adam and Eve, we have all been born with this innate desire to go our own way. And when we have this desire to go our own way, it is inevitably going against the way of God, our Creator, the one who loves us so much. Something or someone had to die to pay the price for our sin. And all along, God has this plan for Jesus to be that someone who's going to pay the price. Verse 10 very clearly tells us that it was the will of God for Jesus to be crushed as he was to make an offering for our sin. And it's through the crushing of Jesus that we are given the righteousness of God. We know that three days after Jesus died, he defeated death and sin and the grave by rising from the dead. Like he, he defeated it forever. And even now we know, and we see right here at the end of, of, of Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus is at the right hand of God making intercession for believers, for all those who make the decision to follow him. Now, here's a statement that I want you to hang on to, okay? Write this down even. It's clear that Jesus is at the center of God's plan for my life. Why would he not be at the center of my plan for my life? It's clear that Jesus is at the center of God's plan for my life. Why would he not be at the center of my plan for my life? Folks, listen, God the Father, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb before you even thought on her mind, God's design is for Jesus to be at the center of your life. Is Jesus at the center of your plan for your life? 
You see, one thing in prophecy all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, specifically prophecy regarding Jesus, one of the things you're going to find inevitably is that Jesus is at the center of God's plan for your life. I can imagine there may be some of you here today and um, you have never placed Jesus at the center of your life. You've never told him that he's more important than you are. You've never repented of the sin that is a part of your life and surrendered your life to Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 6 says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. Of Romans chapter, nine, chapter 10, verse 9, says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Putting Jesus at the center of your life initially is simply confessing your sin to him and believing that he truly is the Son of God. If you're here today and you've never done that, I want to encourage you to ask a Christian friend to show you what that looks like. And if your Christian friend isn't able to show you what that looks like, then come to me just as fast as you can uh, here in a few moments and I'll show you what it looks like. I'd love to show you what that looks like. It could also be, though, that there are people here today and you have placed Jesus at the center of your life at some point in your lifetime, but recently you've been living as if um, he's not the center of your life. You're living as if you are the center of your life. In response to that, I, I want to qu simply quote one passage of Scripture, one verse. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is a reminder for us. It's the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Folks, Jesus gave everything for you. How can we in turn not give our everything to him? I repeat this phrase again. It's clear that Jesus is at the center of God's plan for my life. So why would he not be at the center of my plan for my life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? God, I come to you, and I know without a doubt that your word is powerful. It is inspired by you, Father, it is, it is your very word to us. The fact that we can trust it is seen in the, in, in the reality that what you say is going to happen actually happens. But then, Father, another beautiful thing about what we've talked about today is that we can clearly see your plan is supreme, that your plan is greater than any plan that we could ever come up with. So, Father, why would we want to be the center of our lives? when all along Jesus is the center of your plan for our lives. Father, this morning I pray that every single one of us has a time of searching our hearts, searching our lives, and simply asking the question, is Jesus at the center of my life? We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life. He lived the life that I could never live. It's a perfect life, sinless life. He died the death that I deserved to die. But he rose in victory, giving me the life that I desperately needed. 
Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. And Father, we pray that you show us how to make Jesus the center of our lives. It's in his name I pray, amen.